My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it's an honor to be here this morning and to open the Word of God, which we do each week, and love being able to do that with you all. Today, we're arriving at the end of our series in the book of Hebrews, and this has been a journey that we've been on for the last 16 weeks as we've studied the Word of God together, and we've studied some really dense Theology. theology is the study of God through his word. We've, we've been in looking at incredible truths throughout this book and really want to ask the question today, as we walk out of this series, how do we take what we learned and live it out? How do we take all that we've learned, all these deep, dense, beautiful, wonderful theological truths and have those impact the way that we go forward as a community and live these things out Because there's actually a danger in studying theology as just an intellectual exercise, as just that I'm going to learn more, learn more, learn more, but not practice, not live it. It's kind of like having the diet of an Olympic lifter, but the exercise routine of someone just sitting on the couch watching TV. It's not going to be good for you. you. You need to bulk up and eat the right things, but there's also a practice and exercise. The same thing in the Christian faith. There's an exercise of our faith that's supposed to come through. And it's not as though we have to put these two in tension, as though you have to choose, are you going to be a Christian who's about theology and studying God, or are you going to be a Christian who's about action and love? No, you don't have to choose between the two. But the point of all that we've been learning and growing in and looking at in the book of Hebrews is that it's supposed to shape the way that we live in our relationship with God, with one another, with this world. It's supposed to be lived out through us. And we see this so clearly at the end of Hebrews 12, where we were last week. In Hebrews 12, verse 28 to 29, it says this. It says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So we've received this kingdom. God has done this work in us. He has saved us. He's brought us into his family. He's brought us into his kingdom. We're to be grateful. And then what results from that? And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The result of God's work in our life is to be worship. What God has done, what he has given us, what he has brought us into is to be a sense of worship. So maybe I'd ask the question, what comes to your mind when you think of worship? Is it maybe singing together? Is it coming together for church? I mean, that's absolutely part of it. What we do here on a Sunday morning is worship. And that's so significant, so important. When you pray to God, that's worship. But what we see as we go throughout this book is that the whole of the Christian life is worship. The, the, The full meaning of what worship is is the whole of who we are being committed to God. William Lane has a great quote about this. He says, authentic worship is an expansive concept that makes sacred all of life. All of life is sacred. All of life is a place in which we can offer worship. And perhaps what's actually happening is after this command of offering worship to God is that uh, chapter 13 of Hebrews is telling us what does worship look like? What does it look like for us to live out God's kingdom as we're given commands about that in chapter 13? And chapter 13 is where we are today and it's 25 incredible, dense, beautiful verses. But we won't be able to get to all of it, which is kind of fitting for our series in Hebrews. We'll be in the first six verses. But it's kind of fitting for our series in Hebrews because throughout Hebrews, 
We haven't been able to touch on every single verse in detail. If we wanted to, we could have done a two-year series on this or a 20-year series on this. And maybe some of you are ready to move on. You're ready for a new series. Maybe some of you want more. And if you want more, I want to encourage you that this is a launching point. The study that we're doing together is a launching point. There's so much more you can learn through this book. And I hope that throughout the rest of your life, that your theology of Hebrews continues to grow and your theology of all of God's word continues to grow. But as we arrive today, what we want to do is we want to ask this question, how do we take what we've done in these 16 weeks, a 16-week survey, and how does this affect the here and the now, the way that we live out our lives? One way you could say is that the theology of Hebrews is the theology that soars in the heavens. It's so high, it's so beautiful, it's so great, and yet it's meant to be lived out here and now in our community, through our community, and in our world. And as we enter into chapter 13, we see some of the ways that God's kingdom is to be lived out as his people through us. So Hebrews 13, 1, if you have your Bibles, you can open there. And we're going to be in the first six verses. Verse 1 says this. This is how we are to offer worship to God. This is how we are to love God. This is how we are to live out his kingdom. This is the implications of the theology of Hebrews. It says this, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Now, there's kind of a danger of such a well-known command because you can hear something like this and you say, well, of course. I mean, love each other, show brotherly love to each other like brothers, sisters in Christ. Sure, we've heard these things. Few people would object to the idea of loving one another. But I think when you see Christian love lived out, And when you experience Christian love lived out, it's anything but dull and ordinary. It's anything but that. A few weeks ago, Hannah and I, my wife, joined a young adults group for just one of their weeks of life group. And when we got to the time of prayer, it was an incredible thing. There's all single young adults. And we got to the time of prayer and we didn't ask for prayer requests. No one asked for prayer requests. We just dived, they just dove into the time of prayer. But as they went through that time, It was incredible because each one of them in turn was prayed for with specific prayer requests about things that were going on in their life, in their family, in their work, in their heart. This is an incredible picture of family love, of brothers and sisters in Christ coming together and praying for each other, knowing each other well enough to know the needs, the hurts, the pains, the hopes, and the joys of one another and praying for each other. As we left, we just reflected, we thought this is a beautiful picture of community. And Jesus actually said in John 13 that one of the things that would define his people, one of the defining marks of his people would be love. He says, by this, to his disciples, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That we as a community are actually supposed to be defined by this love. And when we see it lived out, it's a beautiful Thing. And this is what worship looks like. This is what the theology of Hebrews, which soars in the heavens, looks like lived out in the here and now. Knowing, loving, caring, praying for each other. Treating one another, not as strangers, but being united as family. Family not on the basis of uh, natural disposition, natural fit, social class, but just because we belong to the same Christ. But in verse two, we see that this love is not just to be shown for those who are in our immediate context, but for all of God's family. Verse two says this, 
Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This is a really interesting command because it's an encouragement of entertaining angels that's given for how we would show hospitality. I don't know if that's where we would normally go, but the author goes here. And here's why. In Genesis 18 and 19, there's two passages that the author's likely looking back on and thinking of, where Abraham and Lot, two people in God's history, showed hospitality to strangers. And these strangers were angels sent by God. Abraham showing hospitality to three angels, one of them being the angel of the Lord, and Lot showing hospitality, accepting to his home, protecting two angels. And they were blessed through that because they had shown hospitality to them. And so the point is probably something like this. Show hospitality to strangers in such a way that you treat them with the utmost respect and love and kindness, as though they were a messenger or angel from God. And who knows, God may actually bless through that service. And God might provide for you through that service. And this reference to strangers is probably actually a reference to people within the Christian community who would have need of assistance on their journey or travel. And many of the the commands right here are in the context of this brotherly love. And there's actually a place in 3 John, uh, which is just one chapter, but 3 John 5 through 6, where this term brothers and strangers goes together, where these people who are in need of assistance on their journey were assisted and sent on their way, that they were strangers, but they weren't treated as strangers, but they were treated instead like brothers, belonging to the family and the household of God. And the author commends them in 3 John for that. There was a need for Christians as they would travel in this time. You could think of someone like Paul who might have a need for hospitality, And this, in a sense, protects us from a sense of tribalism, thinking our church community is just us here. No, it's it's actually, it's all of those who belong to Christ, all of those who belong to his community. Maybe you've had this experience in your workplace where you meet someone else who's a Christian. In that moment, you say, oh, we have something in common. We have something in common. There's a mini conspiracy forming there. Oh, you belong to Christ too? Let's see God's kingdom lived out here. We see each other as brothers and sisters because of our belonging to Christ. It reshapes the very way in which we understand our identity and community. So it's still good to show hospitality to strangers, whether or not they belong to Christ. But the point here is probably something like show a special care and love for people because they belong to Christ. We still want to show hospitality to strangers regardless. It's not, a, it's not a, hey, you don't have to show hospitality if someone doesn't belong to Christ. That's why we're doing our work with Afghan refugees. I think that's a beautiful and profound and important work that we live out the kingdom of God and show kindness regardless of someone, what someone believes as they come in. But here it seems that the command is pushing us to say, look at God's community in a larger framework. And even to view your home as a ministry tool a place that you can show blessing, care, and provision, a place that you live out your faith. Now, when considering spiritual worship, sometimes we might think of things more spiritual. But even in these first couple of verses, the way that worship looks lived out is in very practical things. It's love, it's kindness, it's opening your home, providing it to a stranger in need and caring for them. 
So I want to give you encouragement. Maybe as you've gone through this series in the book of Hebrews, there have been some things that are confusing to you. And maybe you couldn't explain all the intricacies of Melchizedek or of the priesthood or of the covenant. And if that's the case, I just want to say that's okay. That's okay. We want to continue to learn. We want to continue to grow together. But here's what the theology of Hebrews looks like lived out. To know that God loves you, to know that he cares for you, that he's brought you into his family if you're in Christ through his son, and now to live out in your lifestyle a love and a care and a hospitality that shows the kingdom of God. So the theology of Hebrews, it soars in the heavens, it's great, it's high, it's beautiful, and yet it dwells with us in our living rooms. It meets us in these practical needs of showing hospitality and kindness and care, even to the stranger. And as you go on in verse three, uh, we're, we're told then how we're to care also for our brothers and sisters who are struggling, either through suffering or through imprisonment. Verse three says this, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. So there are probably Christians who are struggling in this time because of their faith, because they had walked with Christ. They were put into prison, mistreated, suffering, going through hardship. And the author is saying, remember them, love them. They belong to you. You are one with them. Show them kindness and care and do not forget them. And I, I can't help but think about this as we think through our brothers and sisters right now at Step Seminary in Haiti, who've gone through so much trial and difficulty over the last couple of years, just through the pandemic. On top of that, just complete social unrest, uh, the assassination of their president, gangs coming in and overtaking their seminary being pushed out, going through hardship, the dean of the seminary losing his own son to just senseless violence. He says, remember, remember those who are mistreated. This is why in the heart of Advent, we're, we're working with our brothers and sisters at Step, and we're saying, okay, how can we support? How can we pray for them? How can we encourage them? How can we give to them? I'm grateful that many of you have already given generously kindly. I've been praying and asking, how can we be praying? I know that some of you have even said, if there's ever a need, we'll open our home. It's a beautiful picture of what the theology of Hebrews looks like lived out. It meets us in the here and now. It's lived out in our community. It's, it's caring for God's people across the world. It's, it's seeking his kingdom beyond the walls of this church and to the ends of the earth. That's what the theology of Hebrews leads us to. It soars in the heavens, but it meets us in our living rooms, it meets us in prison, it meets us in hardship. It's meant to be lived out in the whole of our lives. And as you go into verse four, there's another place it's meant to be lived out. Not just in all those areas, but in our holiness and in our bedrooms. Verse four says this, let marriage be held in high honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So to hold marriage in high honor is to respect what God has made in marriage. And I think often in our culture, when we talk about marriage, even from a Christian, perspe from a Christian perspective, it's, 
It can at times be in a defining what we believe about it or defending what we believe about it. But I just want to remind us this morning that it's a blessing to be held in high honor. It's a blessing. It didn't have to be. God, God designed and intended to bless humanity with marriage. He made it. He's, he had this design that a husband and wife would come together into a marriage. It would be a bond of intimacy and love and care and affection. It would flow forth into a life-giving relationship, bringing children and generations and society into the world. And it's all this blessing and this gift and this sign of God and the, the author saying, hold it in high honor. Now, I want to be clear that being married is not the only way that you can honor God. Singleness can also be a profound gift and a profound blessing. The Apostle Paul talks about that. There are many ways to hold marriage and honor, I believe, as well, not even just as a married couple, but as a single, even as you support and care for others, that could be one way in which you hold marriage in, in high honor. But the context here is talking about holding this in high honor, and it seems there are many ways that you can not honor marriage. We could go through many of them. It could just be complaining, complaining about your spouse. That's a way of putting down marriage, saying, oh, my husband, he's, he's kind of an idiot. Or my wife, she just, she can't get it together. Her cooking's not good, whatever it might be. Those might just seem like a, a dig at your spouse, but really it's, it's putting down marriage. The honoring of that relationship could be allowing something into a marriage. could be intruding upon someone else's marriage in more explicit ways or just uh, in ways that are just less loving. But it seems like the primary concern or perhaps one of the primary concerns that the author has here is one of holiness in the marriage bed. It says that we are to hold marriage in high honor and to let the marriage bed be undefiled, to not let anything unclean go into the pure bond of love that a husband and wife are meant to have, which could include cheating on a spouse, an affair, entering into someone else's marriage, or it could be the things you look at and gaze at and long for that all of a sudden begin to disrupt the bond of marriage. And it says at the end of verse four that God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. As we go through Hebrews, there's a lot of heavy warnings. Last week, we looked at our God who is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire who will consume all that is evil and unjust and wrong. And here we are told that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So how do we take a command like this? I know in this room that as we approach a topic like this, there's probably going to be different approaches people will have. Some people might say, we get it, move on, hold marriage in high honor. Next point. Some of us might just be honestly struggling with some of our own shame and our own issues. Maybe you've been fighting for years in different areas and you're struggling and you have just a real sense of shame. Maybe there's things from your past that as you approach a topic like this, it's hard to not be overwhelmed by shame. I know for some of you might need encouragement of the grace and mercy of God. Yet I also know sadly that there are many who will have hidden sins. They will just sit week after week untouched, unapproached, just sitting there. And one of the things that makes the warnings of Hebrews so great is the offer of salvation that accompanies them. 
I don't think any verse captures this better than Hebrews 2, 3. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Our God is a consuming fire, but the salvation that he offers is so great. Last week, Thomas looked at Hebrews 12, and it talks about how when we approach God through Christ, there is the sprinkled blood of Christ, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, Cain killed his brother Abel unjustly. And when Abel was killed, God says it's like his brother's blood was crying out from the ground. His brother's blood is crying out from the ground. What is it crying out? It's crying out for just vengeance upon his brother. But when Christ spilled his blood for us, it did not cry out for our vengeance, but for our just pardon. Here's what I want you to know today. Regardless of the sin in your life, specifically in this area, and purity and sexual sin, regardless of the sin in your life, there is grace and mercy. And Christ's blood can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Christ speaks a better word saying you are pardoned. It is gone. It is finished. That does not define you. If you are in Christ, you do not need to be defined or understood in terms of that because his blood has ransomed. It has brought you free from your sin. And so you don't await God's judgment with dread, but with confidence. Confidence you look to Christ alone. But there's a danger in not confessing our sins and just allowing these things to fester week after week. And my hope for you is if you have hidden things in your life that you would know today is not too late, regardless of the sin, regardless of what you may be going through, if you confess your sins, there is grace and mercy. And it's what makes the warnings of Hebrews so powerful. How could we neglect such a great salvation? Such a great salvation. There's freedom and forgiveness so that none of us here for anything in our lives would need to pass into judgment. But we could look to Christ today with confidence. One of the things that I've enjoyed most about ministry is working with men through addiction recovery groups. And one of the reasons for that is because I just, I love the vulnerability that happens when people just honestly confess sin and repent and experience the grace of God and are pushed forward in their life. And I hope for you, if you have something hidden, that you don't keep hiding it. There's so much grace, there's so much mercy offered in Christ. And we're told to hold marriage in high honor among all. This is how we honor God. So the theology of Hebrews, it soars in the heavens. It reaches into our relationships, the way that we love and care for one another, the way we care for those who are mistreated and in prison, the way that we show hospitality. And it reaches into our hearts, to our purity, to our bedrooms. In verses five to six, we see it affects our love of money. Say it reaches into our wallet. Verses five to six says this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? These words of I will never leave you nor forsake you were given to Joshua as he was about to enter into the promised 
land. God had given Joshua this command to lead the people into the promised land. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you have this commission, but don't worry because I will be with you as you go. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that same promise is given to us that God, our God will never leave us nor forsake us. Now the issue at hand here is money and possessions, but even beneath that it's contentment. The point isn't exactly that here's the money you can make and beyond that is wrong or you need to make under this or give this amount. Uh, It's not an exact prescription as much as it is this. Be content with what you have. It's an issue of the heart of a contentment. It would be desiring and loving and being founded in God. The way my mom has said it is helpful when it comes to contentment, that we can often say, I will be happy when this happens. If we were to take that with money and possessions, we could say, you know, I'll be happy when I get, I get a house. I'll be happy when I get a bigger house. I'll be happy when I get the house paid off. I'll be happy when I get a new car, when I get a new phone, when I get a new game, when I, when I get this Christmas present, whatever it would be, it could be the smallest thing. And this is hard for me. I remember when my wife Hannah and I first moved into our apartment. This was our first apartment we had ever had together. And we were now together and we, we get to be there. And it's this beautiful thing. Neither of us have ever had a place of our own and it's now our own. And we're happy. But it wasn't long for me before I wonder, uh, would it be good for us to have a two bedroom actually? Like what if we have a kid? I don't, even, I don't even have kids. I'm just concerned about the hypothetical child I might have and if I could provide for that. It's so easy to not be content and say, well, what if I need more? What if I need more? What if I need more? When all along, God is providing. And so the author is is coming to us and and God in his word is coming to us and saying, be content. Be content because what you have is me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But it's so easy for us to be on this like treadmill of ingratitude. I'll be happy later. I'll be happy later. I'll be happy later. I just need a little more, a little more. And then once, once my wrath gets to this point, I'm happy. We're good. Like I'll be secure at this point. So the author and God is put, putting on our hearts, are, are we finding contentment and money, possession, security there? Or are we finding it in him? Like we said, this is hard in our culture because in our culture, we have Black Friday starting on Thanksgiving, the day of gratitude, where you thank God for all that he's given you and you celebrate being together in community. You say, oh, what a blessing. I'm so thankful. And then we got to finish dinner early so we can go shop. (laughs) And there's billions of dollars. Even this season, there's billions of dollars that are dedicated to, to to putting on your heart and your mind to own more things. Billions of dollars going into advertising. And it's very easy for our culture to disciple us just towards consumerism. We want more. We want more. This is who we should be. My life consists in having an abundance of possessions. But God comes to us here and he says, be content because I, I, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am your inheritance. I am your reward. You can be content in me. And it's not merely that we, we say, oh, we, we no longer have desires in our heart. We no longer seek riches. But it's simply that we look at the worldly treasures and the worldly pleasures. And we see that those riches are nothing 
nothing compared to the God who comes to us and says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is our heart. This is our desire for Christmas season. That as a church, that what we would be shaped by is not worldly, earthly possessions and gifts, but by remembering the greatness of Christ, what God has given to us in his own son, Jesus Christ, and the inheritance that we have with him. We want our church traditions to be centered around that. We hope that you in in your life, whether married or single, that the traditions that you have in this time with others will be built around the inheritance that you have in Christ. That yes, give each other gifts, celebrate, but may those all be reminders of what God has given us. This is why in the heart of Advent, we seek to give away that none of the money that we get during uh, heart of Advent giving is for something just here, but we're actually looking outside and how can we be blessing and giving to what God has around the season? So if you give to heart of Advent, we're, we're seeking to see God's kingdom grow outside the walls, out beyond us to see God's kingdom grow. And I know that many of you have given already generously. Thank you for doing that. I know for many of us, there's going to be a struggle and there's always going to be a struggle in our hearts of finding contentment. And may God give us grace as we continue to do that. But I'm grateful to be part of a church that is generous, has loved and cared well. It's loved and cared well for me. There's a lot more verses in the book of Hebrews, and particularly in chapter 13. We looked at six of them today. The ones that I was most excited to preach about about a week ago, I'm not even touching right now. And it's hard for me. <laughs> and I hope that as you go out of this series, there's much more that you can continue to study. But what we want to go away with this is today with, is with this, to live out what God has commanded us, to see that though the theology of Hebrews soars in the heavens, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's profound, that it's lived out here and now in our relationships with one another, in the way that we show hospitality, and the way that we care for brothers and sisters who are struggling and suffering and imprisoned, and the way that we live out holiness and in our heart's contentment. And our worship, as William Lane said, makes all of life sacred, makes all of life sacred, reaches into every area of our heart. But ultimately, our worship is a response. It's a response to what God has done for us in saving us, in giving us his kingdom. So as we close this series, let's remember what God has done for us. Prepared a short summary just of the book of Hebrews, selectively, of what God has done for us that I want to remind us of. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his very own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is one with God in the exact imprint of his nature. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. And he has accomplished eternal salvation for all of God's people through the covenant and his blood. Having offered up his life once and for all for the forgiveness of sins, And being raised from the dead, he now lives as our forever high priest so that we can approach him in our time of need and find strength to endure in every trial of life. 
He will one day return to judge this world and to rid it of all evil, sin, injustice, suffering, and death, and to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Those in Christ do not need to dread the coming judgment because he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. All that does not belong to Christ will not endure, but every act of love, service, obedience, and sacrifice for his kingdom will endure. So we live as God's people today in the strength and power of Christ, offering spiritual worship and sacrifice to God. And we anticipate the fullness of his kingdom to come until we receive it with all God's people, the outcome of their faith and our faith, our eternal inheritance with God. To God alone be glory now and forevermore through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the kingdom that you have given us. Thank you that your kingdom has no end and that now we anticipate a savior from heaven who will transform all things. Lord, I pray that today that none of us would be hardened in our hearts. Just think about the great warnings of Hebrews that we would not harden our hearts, that we would not shrink back, that we would not be full of fear, but that we would approach you with faith and confidence, knowing that you are a God who is loving and gracious and merciful. Thank you that we have a mediator, Jesus Christ, a high priest forever. Pray that we would approach him in our time of need and that we would find strength to endure. We pray for our brothers and sisters all across the world right now who are gathering to worship and to serve you. Pray that you would encourage them, that you would build them up, you would strengthen them, and that you would equip them. May we seek your kingdom and may we love you above all else. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.